millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. That's... Yeah... <laughs> They have asked for that, really. France are going to the World Cup. Get over This fellow Ronaldo is a cod. Boom, 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 the foul. Boom, 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 the yellow card. Nah, that's actually bollocks, that. I'll have to ask you to mind your language. And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Good lad. I don't throw teacups. It's not my style. I think I'd rather throw punches. What you doing down here, you shorty man? <laughs> You are very welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. Uh, that's me, Ken Early. Mm. Trying to do what Owen McDevitt does <laughs> at the beginning of these podcasts. Extremely upbeat there, Ken. I mean, I think you could probably d- even dial it down. And, well, actually, no, it's fine. It's fine. I mean, I don't, I'm not one to cast aspersions. The voice you're hearing there is that of my assistant, Kieran Murphy. <laughs> He's here to help. Uh, that, nice, so. Ken. Real nice. Owen, Owen, not to, you kiss your mother seen. with that mouth. <laughs> Owen, nowhere to be seen today. He's touring the country. He's on the chicken and ham circuit. I think. Uh, no, no, no. It's, I, I think. I think it's for it's for pleasure, not for business. Although, I mean, if he tied in a couple of, you know, lucrative speaking gigs, I mean, that, that wouldn't be <laughs> entirely wouldn't, out of character. We wouldn't know anything uh, anything about it. So yeah, uh, it's just myself and Kieran today. Uh, later on, we're going to talk a little bit with uh, Tony Barrett uh, about what's happening at Everton, who have recently been taken over or in the process of being taken over. We're going to talk also to Michael Walker about Steve McLaren, who. By the time you're listening to this, may well have been sacked as Newcastle manager. There are journalists who uh, cover Newcastle who are. Um, I saw one particularly striking message from Luke Edwards of the Telegraph, who has sworn to expose himself. I don't. I, I don't know if journalists ever really need to yeah. go out in this kind of thin ice, but he has promised to do a sort of uh, Mick McCarthy backside in Burton's window mm. uh, type of thing if Stephen Cairn doesn't is, get sacked. Is Bernie Slavin the only? person to actually follow through on one of these did he do that i think he may have yeah really? yeah yeah i mean yeah not as a manager as a pundit obviously but i mean yeah he's all all the same i mean there gary lineker is yeah uh he's he's in trouble as well if lesser going to win this league vest and pants he well he has lineker doesn't have a problem with that Lineker's well he has stipulated the the the, the vest is would be good news for everyone. Apparently, I mean, I, I, the man looks in tremendous physical yeah, condition. Yeah, I, I think would. he kind of enjoys getting his kid off. Anyway, I mean, remember Ga- Gascoigne said about Lineker? No, he said the thing that he always really admired most about Lineker. I mean, he was obviously England's almost record international goal scorer. And mm-hmm. Never, top, never top booked, of course, in his career was his body. Yeah, he just had the most lovely, smooth body. Gaza said, "I loved, I loved to look at it." <laughs> So uh, yeah, that was what he said at the time, and maybe we'll I mean, get to see it on the day. But I mean, age, age, Ken is—it's 
cruel mistress. You Still know? smooth, though, I, I'd, uh, oh. I'd wager. That's 20, it's 26 years since Gaza last gazed at uh, Lineker's top, so... Yeah, we ha- it was an interesting weekend of uh, football. I mean, started with a great game at White Hart Lane. Um, there's the danger always of this kind of, uh, you know, scoreboard journalism mm. with these things. But I mean, watching this game, you know, uh, I was talking to a friend who's saying, Wenger is fluctuating between getting sacked in the morning and four more years <laughs> as this match goes into injury time. This is This literally could go either way, depending on what happens in the next four minutes. And obviously, in the end, Nothing happened, and uh, apart from the BT sports signal collapsing around the world, uh, so people didn't really get to see a lot of that four minutes. It kind of came back on just as Aaron Ramsey burst through on goal and didn't score. Um, but yes, yeah, so I was kind of typically inconclusive. Uh, you know, I don't know if it was really Maurizio Pochettino's finest hour because it looked as though Spurs are, you know, they're two one up. They just scored a kind of hammer of the gods goal. Mm. Uh, if ever there was, you know, a statement goal, it was Harry Kane's goal to put them two one up. Yeah, and you thought there's no way they can lose this, and then he kind of takes off Lamella, puts on Mason. Suddenly, it's all a bit negative. Negative football. It was. It actually was. That was Paul Scholes. Mm. You, your surprise suggested that. May oh, have I didn't been the, first, the first time that Simon has ever played that, and you've agreed with him <laughs> playing it. I didn't know that Scholes was going to say that, but he. I, I agree, I think it was, and maybe got what it deserved. Uh, but at the end of the whole, uh, at the end of the game, there really was only one winner, Kieran, mm. and that was Leicester City, uh, which we'll begin to address in my report on the board. So, um, I guess we'll start with Leicester. I mean, I watched, I was flicking between the Leicester-Watford, mm. Watford-Leicester, and the... Um, Dortmund Bayern game mm. that was on at the same time, um, and actually neither game was hugely exciting. Uh, I mean, I actually started ended up watching more of the Leicester game because I was like, okay, actually, this is this is the more amazing of the mm. two. Although you know this technical standard might be a little bit higher in this Bayern game, it's nothing is really going on there. Let's uh, let's watch this incredibly low quality game between uh, Watford and Leicester, which is helping to decide the destination of the Premier League title. Unbelievably, it's actually being decided out there on that pit on that pitch, and obviously Leicester managed to win again. It's another uh, moment of inspiration from Rian Mares. Uh, Claudio Ranieri says after the game, uh, someone asked me if we're nervous. So everyone is asking him this question. Last season we must be nervous. Now we must be happy. They taste the bitter taste last season. Now they taste the sweet. And I hope it continues. Um, it did kind of have a feel of a pretty important moment in the... Given the fact that their two other main rivals had drawn uh, earlier earlier in the day. Uh, it Yeah, it, I mean, it had the feel of a massive victory. It just didn't have the look of anything like what you'd think a, a potential championship winning uh, win would look like. No, I mean, it was it was low quality. John Bruin was actually at the match and uh, told me that he had seen some of the staff, uh, some of the sort of fitness trainers and so on of Leicester going absolutely crazy during the match. You know, like men who, men, he said, who looked as though they're on very big bonuses to win the, <laughs> to win the Premier League and we're just getting a t- touch impatient yeah. with some of the sloppy 
passing and losses of possession. <laughs> the lawyer that drew up those contracts, so like, <laughs> we'll, we'll, well, we might as well throw in a win the Premier League bonus as well. Hey, hey, who yeah. cares? You know, <laughs> I mean, which one of us hasn't, you know, had a, a little reverie to themselves over the last little while? thinking about what things would have been like if only we'd backed Leicester at 5,000 to 1 to win the Premier League. I mean, what I could have done if I just randomly stuck down 100 euros at 5,000 to 1. I was thinking more a euro. You know, I don't think any of us has the money to be throwing around 200 euro bets on 5,000 But, you know, imagine, you know, some magical sort of, under the influence of some magical force, you had gone in and, and actually done that. You know, I mean, have you had this... Have you had this reverie? I haven't, actually. I, I really haven't. Um, because, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's not a bet that would ever come into your head. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, the ones that I would get annoyed about is the, are, are the ones where I would tell you, here, Ken, I actually think, you know, there's a really good chance of this sporting result coming off. Yeah. And then not backing it and backing up my, my big talk with, with money. Should have put 250 on yeah. uh, I mean, that, that, yeah, that's Yeah, that kind of thing. I mean the you know two hundred the two hundred euro bets on Leicester to win the Premier League at five thousand one those ones well that would have been that would have been you know a million yeah a million pounds yeah a million euros Uh, okay I mean I I don't know I have I have succumbed to that those wandering those kind of fantasies I mean these are the kinds of things that are going through my head at the moment Um, you know the you know the two monkeys grooming each other in Mm. Homer Simpson it's similar (laughs) (laughs) two gambling monkeys. Um, but Ranieri is uh, saying, I mean, he, he says they tasted bitter taste last season. Of course, last season actually turned out very well for Leicester. It was bad and then ended really well. Mm. There's still a chance that this season could turn out to be the opposite pattern. We're at exactly the, the moment last season after 29 matches when everything turned around last season. And they went from losing almost every match they played to winning almost every match they played and ended up um, finishing well clear of relegation. We're at exactly that moment. Um, but there really isn't anything to to indicate that that uh, a big change is about to happen. I mean, Ranieri is, has managed to get a real sense of. I mean, it's it's a cliche, a manager's cliche. The only thing that matters is the next game. It's the only thing we're going to think about, and that's what he's been saying all season. But it really seems as though that's kind of got through to the players. It's as though you know the, to think about winning the league is terrifying, but to think about being you know beating your next opponent is manageable. Um, so that's our philosophy. It's not to be nervous and think, ah, we will win the Premier League. This is what Ranieri is saying. Newcastle is another match. The next match, Newcastle. I mean, Leicester should certainly be able to beat Newcastle. They've got, you know, they this happens next Monday. They've got a whole week to train and prepare. Um, you know, you can imagine them really doing a job on Newcastle. Although there is the possibility Newcastle will be under a new manager by the time this happens, because we'll be talking to Michael Walker, uh, as we mentioned. Uh, just about what's likely to happen there, and maybe maybe the new manager um, thing could throw a bit of spanner in the works. But uh, for the moment, they look a much better team. I mean, just looking at what's at, what's actually happening in the table. I mean, this was the first time after this game and and the other results, the the result between Arsenal and Tottenham, where looking at this and thinking they're actually going to do this. Mm. They're actually going to do this because. Just I think other people have had that moment, you know, a couple of weeks ago, maybe. But I know, but this is the thing, you know, there's none so blind as, as those that will not see. You know, here I am, here, here I am, like, I'm a kind of in a position of some sort of a Pharisee, mm. you know, head crammed with, you know, irrelevant A knowledge. wise man. Oh, a wise man, a fool. You know, is there any greater fool? 
uh, than the than the kind of guy who thinks he knows what's going on because he's seen a lot of this already and thinks that the future is going to be like the past. Um, this is what I've been doing all season. Just thinking, there's no way they can do this. They're gonna they're gonna get an injury. They did get an injury. Kante got injured. Uh, Kante got injured. They let in a goal against West Brom, which is exactly the type of goal that Kante prevents. Kante has recovered from the injury. It's amazing. Uh, even injuries kind of, He's like Nicolas Cage in, uh, in what you call it. Um, what was that movie with, uh, with uh, John Malkovich? Con Air? Uh, Con Air, yeah. There's a moment in Con Air when Nicolas Cage, who's like wearing a dirty vest like John McClane, yeah. has this scraggy long hair, is advancing towards a gunman who shoots at him. And Nicolas Cage is advancing with this steely look mm. in his eyes. And the gunman, you know, fires at him. And the bullet basically causes, you see this big fat bullet hole appear in his bicep. Mm. But it, the thing is, he just keeps coming. Mm. He doesn't even change, his, his face doesn't even flicker. He doesn't change pace at all. He just keeps coming, completely impervious to the bullet. That's Kante with that hamstring injury. It doesn't, uh, I mean, hamstring injury might, you know, if you're someone like Philippe Coutinho, you're talking mm. six weeks. If you're, if you're Daniel Sturridge, maybe a year. Kante, <laughs> one game. Maybe, maybe those guys are thinking, you know, I've got a long career here. Maybe Ingolo Kante is thinking, well, <laughs> I may not be in this position again. Uh, maybe, maybe, I, maybe I will have a long career. And maybe I will never have a chance to win the Premier League again. So, hamstring be damned. Yeah. Uh, I'm just going to go for it. That may be feeding into it. I'm sure a lot of these Esther players are, are suddenly, you know, in that Jason McAteer before the World Cup yeah, mentality. Yeah, you know, Daniel Sturridge miraculously recovers in time for a uh, prominent cup final, in, cup final in Wembley. Yeah. You know, I mean, this this happens all the time. And if you're talking about guys being desperate to play in World Cups or guys being desperate to play in European Championships or whatever, I mean, this is it. This is, you know, nine games from history. Mm. Uh, and the nine games, I mean, if you look at them, if they win five out of those games, they're probably going to win the league. Because if, if Leicester were to win five... And draw two, even. Even if they lost the other four. If they won five and lost four. And remember, they've only lost three all mm. season so far. So if they were to lose four out of the last nine and win five, that puts them on 75 points. Now, if they got 75 points, that means Tottenham... Uh, I think would need seven wins out of their last nine to pass them out. That would put Spurs on 76. Mm. Or, you know, six wins and three draws would also do it. Unbeaten, yeah. An unbeaten run yeah. between now and the end of the season for Tottenham would put them on, on 76. I mean, seven, eight or nine wins out of nine would also put them ahead of that time. Remember, we're talking about a five out of nine wins for Leicester and four defeats. You know, they've got four four matches against the top. They've They've got... West Ham, Man United, Southampton, Chelsea, they're the top half teams that they have to play. Lose to all of those teams if they can beat Everton, Palace, Swansea, Sunderland, Newcastle. You know, that's them on 75 points. Um, 75 points looks like a pretty realistic uh, target. 75 points would be the lowest total. If, if they were to win the league in 75, it would be the lowest since Man United in... In 96, 97, they also won the league on 76 points. 75 points, I should say. Uh, what, what, what would Arsenal need to do if Leicester won five? Eight. Arsenal lead eight wins out of nine matches. <laughs> Arsenal win eight out of nine. One of those matches against Man City. City would need to win nine out of ten. Or, you know, eight wins and a draw. Now, City are maybe... City are a team that have done this. They have done this kind of thing before. They, they overhauled Chelsea in, in 2014. 
uh, and ultimately Liverpool there as well. They overhauled uh, Manchester United two seasons before that. United were eight points ahead with six games to go. I mean, United collapsed. Mm. The point is that it's it's not re. I can't see any of those teams managing to put together a sequence like that. The only thing that can actually save the league for any of them is Leicester to collapse. Yeah, and what we're talking about is, is kind of a, like if you lose more games in your last nine than you did in the previous 29. Mm. I mean, that sounds like a bit of a collapse to me and that, it, that may not matter. Yeah, I mean, obviously we've, we're not talking about the prospect of Leicester drawing some matches here. Uh, draws are, are, you know, not a lot better than defeats, I guess, when it comes to uh, points dropped. You know, uh, there, there's, a, there's a few ways you can collapse. I mean, Chelsea obviously did it that season in 2014. Manchester City or Manchester United spectacularly uh, the season that they were chasing the the league, but it, but in those cases, uh, it was also the fact that Manchester City, who were the chasing team, were on a, a string of victories. You know, the, nothing was nothing was going to stop them. The form that they had managed to get themselves into. So, a string of victories plus the team ahead of you collapsing, you in the league. That both of those things need to happen in order for Leicester City not to win the Premier League this year. And it's so, it's, it's a pretty hard one to call. What is more? What's the le- what's the less likely thing to happen? Mm. Uh, Tottenham or Arsenal finally putting together, or Arsenal or City putting together huge, massive runs where they just don't lose or draw, yeah. or Leicester. <laughs> yeah, and that's, and that's them. Uh, yeah, that's them winning. You know, five. That's them winning five out of nine. I mean, they could win more than that. Mm. So, and if they do, then obviously it becomes correspondingly more difficult. So, for for the teams behind them. Um, also, uh, in this mode of thought is uh, Louis van Gaal, uh, who says Manchester United need to win every single one of their nine remaining matches. That's to get a top three spot, though. Mm. It's a lot, but it's always possible, he said. Um, He'd finish on 74 there, number fans, just if you're keeping, keeping, keeping count. <laughs> if they were to get to 27. I mean, so this has just been the story of Manchester United all season. I mean, last week we're talking about their... Um, you know, Midtjylland, uh, Marcus Rashford uh, beating Arsenal, and here they are losing to West Brom, and losing in just bizarre circumstances. I mean, Juan Mata got sent off, and Juan Mata obviously went went to his blog and um, wrote a self lacerating post. Well, maybe not self lacerating. I mean, after almost five hundred games as a professional player, this Sunday I was sent off for the first time in my career. So he's already kind of laying out. You know, I'm not that type of player. Um, as you can imagine, it's not easy for me to write these lines. So personal suffering, you know, mm. fronting up. It's hard for him, but he's fronting up. The truth is, this is a new and strange situation for me. It's not easy to assimilate, but we learn from everything. Um, so, yeah, he, he says... Can, can I tell you something uh, mm. quite shocking? Yeah. That as I saw him walking, um, uh, walking off the pitch... Mm. This blog post did come into my head. <laughs> really? Yeah, it did actually. I was, I was thinking about how annoying Wild Matters' apolo- apologetic uh, blog post would be to read for a Manchester United fan. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, it's well, just look, don't get just don't get yourself sent off. Look, I'd, I'd much rather that than having to read this. Uh, you know, the self-immolation. Look, he's fronting up. He's fronting up. You know. Um, in this sport, there's no time for celebrations or moaning, he says. Uh, um, 
I, I didn't realize that. I thought people in football were always celebrating or moaning. Um, but he's, try, he's trying to uh, treat those two imposters just the same, I guess, is, is what Matt is trying to do here. But I mean, it was, it was bizarre. It was so weird. I mean, it was one of a series of these uh, red cards over the weekend. Um, Morales, Coughlin, him, Milner, all similar types of uh, two, two bookings, two crazy bookings. What are you doing? And in his case, both fouls and Darren Fletcher. I was wondering, was there some reason? I mean, one of them wasn't really a foul. It was a, you know, a, now you stopping Fletcher taking, taking a quick free kick. Second one was just mad. It was like a leg breaker. It was like, you could easily get sent off for that in itself. Mm. Uh, maybe lucky not to have a, a longer ban than he's actually going to have. Um, but just it's, it's typical for Manchester United, they can't really seem to put together any momentum. And I did wonder, uh, when I saw the teams for this game, why Memphis Depay wasn't playing. I mean, given that he's really just kind of come to life in the, in the last couple of matches, why would you now take him out of the team just in, in when it seemed to be his best run of form? I thought that was a, a strange decision. Uh, but maybe not the first one of the season uh, at that uh, at that club. So what else should we talk about? Because this this I think is doubly disappointing from Manchester United's point of view because it came just after Liverpool had found themselves in a similar situation against Crystal Palace. Um, Liverpool, who play Manchester United on Thursday and are obviously chasing them, uh, uh, chasing them in the table, they're now only three points behind with a game in hand. Um, and Liverpool were in a similar situation Chris Palace, a goal down, a man down, but in their case, they managed to win. And they did so in a manner that did not impress the Crystal Man- uh, Palace manager, Alan Pardew, who, after the game, spoke to Jeff Shreves. Uh, and one of the things they were talking about was the decision to give a penalty in the last minute of injury time to Liverpool. I'm sure it is tough to take. Devil's advocate. If the player feels the contact, does he make it a penalty? Well, he certainly made it. Quite, you know, he made it a big meal of it. In my opinion. Um, if it had been us, we wouldn't have got it. That's a strong statement. Well, we don't. We we've had penalties all year with Wilf and not gone. And I'm frustrated because you know, literally, I thought, see the referee. He looked at it. He weren't giving it. He knew. And the linesman thought it was contact before that. He didn't actually think it was the knee. He thought it was contact before that. I know that. And I think that's... Um, well, you know, we're talking about the penalty decision here. Let's just talk about the game. This is a game we should have come away with something and we didn't. We made... Uh, our subs were not very good. I point my finger at myself. Um, we move on. Why weren't they very good? Let's not get into a debate here where you're trying to antagonise no, no, no. me. No, yeah, no. I'm frustrated because I've lost, right? Yeah. And I think the penalty is tough. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to say, and I think you should accept that and let me go back to the, do the press it uh, elsewhere. No, I understand that. I, I wouldn't be disrespectful to Alan. What I'm saying, no, I was, I was, I was, a little bit. But no, I'm just get on with it. <laughs> That's part. I mean, I can't be the only person laughing at Alan Pardew. No, no, I w- would think definitely not. I saw a friend of mine and said, if, "I think the whole planet would be willing to accept the melting of the polar ice caps if we could all, uh, if we, as long as we all knew that Pardew's house would be flooded first. Um, uh, I mean, it's just ridiculous. You know, he's just he's just this ranting, absurd. Like, I mean, he he essentially doesn't deny that it was a penalty. You know, I mean, or doesn't deny that there was a contact. You know, mm. from his defender, Damien Delaney. He was unfortunate, but clumsy. I mean, clumsily gave away a penalty. 
He's like he's running around his penalty area on his knees. It's not a situation where you can say your defender was blameless. He, you know, did everything right. I mean, it was just, it was a silly challenge to try and make. And even da- even the fact that Damon Delaney knew that and didn't make the challenge, you know, it kind of doesn't matter. He's made the mistake. And from there, you know, they, yeah. that was going to happen. That was always going to happen. I mean, it's just, I don't know. It just seemed like, uh, I mean, how obvious. I mean, as Simon was saying, I'm sure Jeff Shreves was second as he walked away from that interview. He would have much rather just had a, um, a, a boring, polite conversation about um, how Palace didn't manage to win the game ultimately, uh, and was probably devastated with what he with the footage that he ended up getting. <laughs> but the the substitutes the party was talking about. I mean, he he did say my subs were no good. He just kind of threw it in there, and then maybe he regretted saying it because Shreves immediately picked up it and said, you know, why were they no good? The subs are Jordan Much, Dwight Gale, Bakary Sacco. Now maybe Pardew was just angry. Part of it was that he was angry with Dwight Gale, who wasn't ready to come on. Dwight Gale, he told him to get ready to come on, and Gale was like, oh, where's my shirt? Oh, I better put on my shirt. And Pardew was kind of doing his nut. But Gale and Sacco were, were only on for like 10 minutes. You know what I mean? There's nothing, there's not a lot necessarily they could do. Um, uh, Damien Delaney himself uh, reckoned maybe he said that's the best Palace have played in a long time. So you kind of asked yourself, what do we have to do to win a game of football? But we play on. There's not much you can do. We still have a nine-point cushion to the bottom three. He says, you look at some of the goals that have gone us against it as well, uh, gone in against us as well. The deflection for the first against Sunderland. Brini's equalised it tonight. Nine times out of ten, that doesn't even go near going going in. So I don't know. Maybe someone's put a spell or something on us, possibly. Um, <laughs> uh, hopefully something, not. Something for us to look at. Uh... Um, Liverpool obviously managed to win uh, this game uh, largely thanks to the Crystal Palace goalkeeper Alex McCarthy who gave the ball straight to Firmino who finished the chance uh, a chance that arrived at his feet by surprise very coolly and then Benteke managed to score thanks to winning this winning and then scoring this penalty Benteke then talks afterwards about um, he says it's in the most difficult situation that the real warriors the tough men and determined guys stand up Um, he also says uh, of course it frustrates me. This is sitting on the bench all the time and seeing Divock Rigi, like, you know, his junior counterpart in the Belgian squad playing ahead of him. Uh, he says, I think on Sunday there were eight international players out of the starting 11, so I'm not competing against nobodies. I just have to accept it. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe maybe Benteke can... Uh, I mean, there, was a, uh, there were at least a few more promising signs from him. Um, Klopp mentioned that he'd missed a chance with his first touch uh, but it was more the fact that he managed to create that chance for himself with a little piece of movement. Movement has been the big thing missing from Benteke since he's joined Liverpool. He's, he's kind of been standing there watching the game happen around him and not really managing to make any meaningful, take any meaningful initiatives. Uh, and maybe that was a sign that he can. Anyway. Yeah, uh, is, is, do you think this is a situation where, I mean, would it not make sense for Klopp to just play Benteke now on Thursday? The The thinking being that he might have some confidence now that you know this I'm sure this is a big moment for him uh, on a personal level why not try like there is quality there why not try and ride that quality for a couple of weeks now I would be surprised if he did because I think his I just don't think he feels Benteke is going to give him I mean he obviously favours guys who are very mobile it's more important to him that a forward is able to move around a lot 
during the game because this is the big thing that Origi has been doing than that he's gonna that, that you can rely on him to score a chance if it comes his way. Yeah, it's it's, it's where um, good business meets good uh, good football management. You have this massive investment. There is a slim chance that you can now get something back on that investment. But it's still not. It still may not be the right thing to do from a football standpoint. Yeah, I don't think. I think in in, in a game like this, there's a lot of stake. Really, whether the season is judged successful or not, largely will depend on the result. And and I, I think that goes for both sides. And that I mean, there's never been. They've never played a Europa League game that's kind of had so much riding on it. I mean. You know, I said Liverpool have won the competition three times. Clearly, they've played bigger games in this competition. Uh, you know, not in the Europa League. I mean, there's never been a Europa League game that I'd say the fans uh, of either side would have cared so much about. Not that Manchester United haven't. Have they ever played? In, I don't think they've ever played in the Europa League before, as it's described. I don't think they've. Have they? Did they? Maybe when they got knocked year. out by Basel that time, did they end up in the Europa League? I don't think. I don't even think they did. Wasn't Fergie talking about it as a punishment for not qualifying? I can't remember. Uh, I honestly can't remember. I mean, I do remember they played in the UEFA Cup uh, and Rodor Volgograd knocked them out. Do you remember that? It was yeah, like 2-2. Yeah, yeah. Did Peter Schmeichel score? Yeah, to save the save unbeaten the 2-2. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's it's easier for me to remember that match from 1995, I think, than to remember whether they got into the Europa League in 2011 when they got knocked out of the Champions League group stage which maybe goes to show how people tend to think about the Europa League 2012 Athletic, uh, Athletic beat uh, Manchester United Oh Athletic America. Bilbao of course mm-hmm. that was the Bil- the uh, Bielsa Bilbao mm-hmm. uh, they actually played very well um, but yeah okay well we'll uh, we'll talk now to Tony Barrett McDevitt The Murph and Mackey for most welcome Irishman of the year goes to Owen McDevitt Owen, 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 Owen McDevitt from Ireland's second captain show All up in the internet Owen McDevitt Worldwide Second captains those guys, are like, those guys are like family to me man Owen McDevitt This is like the coolest song I ever heard in my whole life Owen McDevitt. All of you said I wouldn't make Stop it. Stop talking about Tom Finney. He said I was a loser. This guy is a bit of a turkey. <laughs> right. He said I was a fucking soccer. But look at me now. All up in the interweb. Owen McDevitt. Worldwide. The new World Federated Championship. Owen McDevitt. Owen McDevitt. To say, for example, the Barcelona team you worked at. Is it fair to say anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. We're joined now by Tony Barrett of the Times to talk a little bit about the situation at Everton. And Tony, um, Everton obviously lost in the most sickening imaginable circumstances over the weekend. 2-0 up, miss a penalty, end up losing 3-2 to a last-minute goal against the team who I'd say most Everton supporters probably thought they would finish ahead of this season. And obviously that's not going to happen now. Um, do you get the sense that this defeat in particular might have been a, a bigger turning point for Roberto Martinez? It, it, it certainly seems like a tipping point uh, from, for the manager more than anyone else. Uh, the, the, the last week's been a good one for Everton in so many ways. You've had the the investment in the club, which has been long sought, and, and I think a lot of people thought it was never going to transpire. And, and that, that created a feel good factor around Everton, but Within that, there was also a sense that Everton need to get results. That 
that they're not getting the results that match up to the quality in the squad. I think if you look through their playing squad, I think if you match up to Leicester City, to Tottenham's, to Liverpool's with a six points clear, you, you would say that Everton should be higher than where they are. Uh, for Everton to be in the bottom half of the table is ridiculous, and, and it's because of games like Saturday. I mean, if Saturday's game had been a one-off, uh, you, you would say, fair enough, they were down to ten men, and things have gone against them, they tired in the final stages, they've missed a penalty, it just hasn't worked out. But this is a recurring theme for Everton. Everton can't hold on to leads. Uh, when Everton are ahead, you wonder what form the comeback will take, because you do expect it to happen. Uh, they're just a team that don't have that kind of, of knowledge of, of how to see out a game, and that comes from the manager, and there's no getting away from that. If, if, you, if you look at the attacking football that they play, you credit Martinez with that, you credit him with giving good attacking players the freedom to express themselves, and, and, and Everton as a team, the ability to get forward in numbers. Uh, so equally, when you look at the defending and their, their lack of game management, probably the biggest weakness, that again comes down to the manager, and it, it's not just an Everton issue. It was one that uh, was was obvious while he was at, at Wigan. He, he he isn't a manager who who really knows how to see out games, and, and that is something which the Everton fans are, are struggling with. And I wouldn't say Saturday was the final straw, but coming up to a crucial FA Cup game against Chelsea, it was it, it could be one of a number of, of straws. Which which if they all go against them, it will. It's going to put him under a lot of pressure. I saw that Neville Southall was commenting on Twitter after this game. He says, league position is shocking with this squad, but new guy has to be ruthless and clear out Deadwood. Never amass that much cash by being nice. So Southall is obviously talking about Farhad Moshiri here, uh, who is the Iranian uh, Anglo-Iranian investor who has uh, bought a huge chunk of Everton and effectively become... Uh, become the boss there. I mean, we can we can go into just exactly what's what's going on there. But when he talks about this guy uh, getting rid of the deadwood, do you get the impression Southall sees Martinez as being part of that? I mean, it's a very difficult position for any manager being at a club when a new owner arrives. Well, well, well Southall's on record to saying Everton squad should be in a higher position. So he clearly doesn't think the players are the major issue. Uh, but he's also he's also been a vocal critic of, of Everton as a club, the board. Uh, and also the manager, so I don't think it will just be uh, related solely to Martinez. I think Southall's felt for some time that Everton should should operate best as a football club, uh, and so I think that kind of comment will be go wider than just the manager. Uh, I'm, 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 Everton confused me in so many ways that I think anyone who's watched them will, will, will feel similar. They they've got so much quality in their team, they've got so many strengths, and yet they are where they are. Also as a club. They've got so many strengths. They've, they've got a credibility which, which a lot of Premier League clubs don't have anymore. They have they have a constituency, uh, which is which is clear and, and distinct. Uh, they they have a reputation within the game, which is, which I wouldn't say is unmatched, but it's certainly up there. That, that certainly in terms of how they conduct themselves, how they they are as a football club, you you would say they are among the most respected most respected English football. But then within that, for a club that don't achieve. But a, but a club that don't win trophies, but a club that gets the final hurdle and invariably falls, but a club which it, its history is is now weighing them down twenty odd years without a trophy, it's, and it's not good enough. And, and Southall is a player of of the past, a player who, who is part of, of Everton's glory. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll have that frustration that every Evertonian has that this is a club that should be doing better, and, and he will feel that for the people within the club who are holding it back who need to be removed and. I mean, perhaps he does think that Martin is, 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 is 
a big part of that. But I mean, maybe he should be a bit more clear. He's, he's usually quite outspoken. Never, I've spoken to him a few times. Usually says what he thinks. So that's a little bit of a cryptic comment. So don't be surprised if he actually says exactly who he'd usually referring to in the coming days. What do you think is going to going to happen then with uh, Moshiri? I mean, this has been a, a one of the biggest things to happen at Everton, I suppose, in many years. One of the most kind of significant corporate developments there. Um, in that a a billionaire, at least somebody who's described in a lot of media reports as a billionaire, is uh, taken over or, or you know has bought forty nine point nine percent of the club. You know, presume maybe he's going to be taking over more of it. Uh, is taking control of the club. I mean, is this going to change uh, the outlook for Everton? Is do, do, is anything yet known about how this guy sees? This going is, is he happy to see happy to let Everton continue to run along under their own steam, or is he thinking of doing maybe more of a Tony Fernandez? Well, well that's the interesting thing. We've heard from so many people involved up to now. We've heard from Everton players, we've heard from the Everton manager, we've heard from Bill Kenwright, uh, we've heard from various shareholders of the club who've, who've all expressed an opinion, and, and, and it's seen as very, very positive news. And, and at face value, you have to take it like that. But we have to hear from Fahad Mashiri himself. Yeah, he's. Uh, based in Monaco, as, as a lot of people of his wealth tend to be, uh, he's. I, I think the situation is still being scrutinised by the Premier League, who, who will do whatever they do to make sure that this deal is all uh, above board. Uh, but the expectation is that the deal will go through, that there are no issues with that. So until he actually speaks, we're a bit in the dark uh, about what his plans are. But, but from what Certainly what Martin has said, he, he said he, he expects to have an expanded budget, was how he put it. Put it. And that, I don't think he, he expects to have a huge transfer budget, but I think what he does expect to happen is, is Everton's wage bill to be freed up. And, and that has been a, an issue for, for several years, the fact that Everton have had certain debts uh, that have prevented them from going in for top players just because their wage bill wouldn't allow it. Uh, Mashiri's apparently going to come in and he, he's going to deal with some of the debt issues. He's also he's he's going to have access to to better banking facilities because of his 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 status because of his personal wealth. And the expectation is that this will instantly transform Everton's ability to pay wages to pay better wages, and and that that could take them to the next level in terms in terms of player recruitment. Whether that happens remains to be seen. I I, I, I do think that. Everton need that. I think Everton need that for some time. Uh, but the problem is that this has happened at a time when so many clubs have got an increased scope to, to attract top players. Leicester City will be, be able to attract a better quality player next year. Yeah, it's like you, you need a, a like a, a, an unspeakable amount of money to actually make any discernible difference. And even then, as in the case of QPR, it doesn't it doesn't always work. Even well, in that well, case. That's the way I look at. It. I look at across the park at Liverpool. I look at their finances being transformed over the last five, six years from being two hundred eighteen, two hundred thirty-seven million pound in debt to being in profit, and and their wage bill growing throughout that period. Liverpool's wage bill is now something like one hundred sixty-nine million, which is significantly higher than it was six years ago. But Liverpool are less competitive than they were. Now a lot of that is down to bad recruitment, and there's no getting away from that. But you don't necessarily get opened up to this market of top players because you've got a, a bigger wage bill. There's so many other issues at play, and, and I think that is is the problem that Everton are going to face, uh, that whatever machinery does bring, and, and I think he will uh, make things easy for them on a financial front, it doesn't necessarily give them the kind of player that would allow them to take that, that next leap. Maybe it can, it can do, it certainly can do, because there are examples of that happen, but it doesn't automatically follow. 
Yeah, you mentioned Liverpool there. I'm sure any Everton fans listening to this are going to be annoyed that we're going to start talking about them now. But the big game in the city this week is, the, I guess, the Europa League match against Manchester United. And uh, I wonder how you, how you think they are going into this one. I mean, they've got this abysmal record against Louis van Gaal ever since he's taken over at Manchester United. Um, you get the sense that maybe they're glad that this fixture came up to give them a chance to address that? Yeah, I, th- I, th- I thought that Klopp, when the draw was made, was very interesting. Uh, I think I think his, his psychology is interesting in itself. In the in before they played Manchester City uh, in the league and Crystal Palace of the weekend, uh, when, when most managers say they're not looking for revenge, Klopp pretty much said he was. He, he said they got things from us that we wanted. City got a cup that we wanted, and Crystal Palace got a win in Anfield that we wanted. Now we've got to make the wins ours. And it's 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 the opposite of what we used to read, and we used to those kind of sanitised managerial comments of we're not looking for revenge. And, and Klopp basically said, no, we are, we want revenge. And he, he got into his players' heads. He kept telling me, we want you to be angry. And it, again, that is the opposite of, of managers saying we need to be calm, don't be going out looking for vengeance, or those kind of things. And Klopp goes the, the exact opposite way. And, and the results that Liverpool have got from that from that approach suggest it's, it's not a bad way of doing things. And soon to draw is made for the Europa League. Klopp, Klopp came into the press conference and the, the draw to be made now and earlier. And he said, you can ask me staff. I said to him yesterday, I wanted Manchester United. Straight away, he put Liverpool on the front foot psychologically. And I, I, I just think that, more than anything, if you want to look at the way the Klopp effect is is ha- having its biggest, biggest impact, I do think psychologically it, it would be the, 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 the main area. I, th- I think the Liverpool players are buying into what he's telling them. And I think him coming in saying... I want a Manchester United, will make them all think, yeah, we want Manchester United. And he followed it up by saying, they beat us, they beat us, and we need to put that right. It's something we need to correct. And so again, he's putting revenge out there for the players, and it's there for them to, to grab. So I think that will be the, the kind of Liverpool you will see on Thursday. Liverpool have to go and looking for revenge. And for me, that, that gives them their best possible chance of getting results. I don't think they should go into it thinking anything other than that they need to put something right. Yeah, it's a game everyone's looking forward to, I guess. Anyway, Tony, thanks for uh, coming to the show today. Cheers, Ken. Good to speak to you. That's one of those things. Stop it! How many players can do this? Duffman can never die. 34 years old. It's one of those things. Duffman can never die. Only the actors who play him. No, he did. No, he did. Do you think Robbie Keane just said, you know what? Any questions about me being the MVP of this league? I think he just said right there. Oh, yeah. He's got more of a tan than me, but. All right, well, as we were talking about at the beginning of the program, Steve McLaren is. Well, it's being reported by a lot of journalists covering Newcastle United. Stephen Curran's going to get sacked today. We're not completely sure. There's no confirmation as yet of where that's going to happen. But already people are talking about who might be coming in to rescue Newcastle over the last uh, few games of the season. We're joined by Michael Walker uh, to talk a little bit about this. Michael, another defeat for them over the weekend, losing to Bournemouth at home. And you could see in this game that the Newcastle fans have got to that state, uh, that state of anger where they've started to boo as soon as they see the ball hit the back of their net, no matter what time in the game it's at, which is never really a good sign. Yeah, well, it's just the atmosphere. There's just that atmosphere of disenchantment that's all around the club. Um, 
it's joyless. If you know, if you had to say one word that encapsulated Newcastle United, it's joyless, and it has been for some time. Uh, this is this might seem you know novel in some kind of way because it's Steve McLaren involved, but the the problems predate Steve McLaren, and uh, it's just the club is soulless, joyless. You know, it's run on a skeleton staff. Um, it's uh, it's not. In a way, it's not fit for purpose if the purpose is to compete in the Premier League. But if it's to survive, if the purpose is to survive in the Premier League, make a few pounds and sort of keep ticking over, then maybe maybe that skeleton staff and that kind of um, approach, maybe it is fit for purpose in that. And actually, they might finish fourth bottom and that might be okay. Yeah. I mean, the, the idea of, you know, Mike Ashley's Newcastle, I mean, I, people have had a lot of time to familiarize themselves with sort of his business model or business values, let's say. And it's yeah. it's kind of like, a, it's a real stripped down, you know, everyone feels as though they're, they're crammed into some no-frills uh, airplane, one where they have actually put on, you know, a coin meter on, on the bathroom door. And it's yeah. kind of, it's almost as though everything is calculated to make people feel as though they just want to get out of this place. But there's a kind of a weird contradiction this season which is that Newcastle have spent an enormous amount of money on transfers. They've spent seventy-five million on transfers this season, thirty million just in January. How does it make sense to throw money around as liberally as they have done in the transfer market this season? Um, you know, given what we've just been talking about in terms of the the general ethos, the values of the club. It doesn't make sense. That's that's the thing. You know it. It has never made sense, but the one thing that you go back to on Mike Ashley since he's taken over the club are the lurches. There have just been a series of lurches all over the place, you know. And for you know, a you've got what you've just said is is absolutely correct about you know they they lurch in to spending in January, having not spent previously. They they pay a player perhaps fifty thousand pounds a week, and yet he might be coached by someone who's earning a fifth of that. Um, they, there is within the staff, you know, at the sort of the ground level staff at the club, you know, pensions have been cut and things like that. You know, there's that, so there's that, there's that kind of erosion of morale over a period of time there. And yet, then they go and, and buy John Joe Shelby, you know, who isn't a bad midfielder, who might actually in it, in a sort of happier club, might prosper and might be what they need. But, you know, that's a lurch. You know, there's just lurches all over. But it's been that way. You know, in 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 2010, Mike Ashley came out with the famous no capital outlay um, statement as well. You know, and that was that was peculiar. You know, that was you know, um, there's this idea that he's dead loyal to his managers, but it's it's this is the eighth manager, you know, since his time there. You know, the one he's been loyal to is actually. Alan Pardew, you know, who's walked away, um, and there, you know, there are just there are just contradictions all over the place, and that's why it's very difficult to to see what happens next. Because whilst everyone thinks McLaren's dismissal is imminent, one of the reasons it might not be is because who are they going to get, and what are they going to pay him? Now, the model would be that they would pay him a small salary with a bonus in it, which is what Alan Pardew signed up to. Um, and he got his bonus in the first year, or the first couple of years. Um, 
but the you know it, so someone might come in and be offered you know a million pound bonus to keep Newcastle up or whatever the the figure is but then what will be their salary after that what will be the um resources left for their staff you know how much will the you know even the masseurs and people like that who are you know very important on a day to day hour to hour basis at any club um in terms of just generating the atmosphere inside a training ground how much are they paid and you know if they're being cut if they're you know you know things it's hard to it might seem very odd to some people that um the cutting of free tickets to staff members such as Steve McLaren and his coaching staff um, were given free tickets for their families. It, it happens at every football club. You get a couple of tickets, but at Newcastle, you now have to pay for them. That that you know, so that so those families might not go because the people are just so irritated by it that they don't go. So therefore, you know, your wife might not go, your brother might not go because they're irritated, and there's that culture of irritation. That's a very small thing, but it actually might have a disproportionate effect. Um, and the thing is, within football, this will be known because people talk. So whoever comes in will know what they're signing up to. Steve McLaren knew what he was signing up to. That's one of the things that you can say is that why you might not be sympathetic to him. There might be many other reasons for Newcastle fans. But one of the reasons you might not be sympathetic to him is because he knew what was what he was signing up to. He thought he could change it from within, but that proves to be very difficult. Yeah, I mean, there's just so many false economies, you know, as you're as you're, yeah. as you're saying there, all these, all these little details which seem calculated to, you know, just piss people off, and and yet they're over the last five years, you know, the seventh highest spenders on transfers in English football. I mean, if I was a manager uh, looking to come in, uh, or you know, being contacted by Newcastle now. And the, and the, the kind of names people are talking about are guys like David Moyes and Rafael Benitez, and these are the sort of names that are being linked with the job, which we don't know yet whether whether there is actually going to be a, a vacancy there because there's been no announcement on uh, on Steve McLaren. I would I would want to, I would be looking for a, a much bigger bonus than one million pounds, given what's at stake for Newcastle and maybe what's at stake for my own reputation. Because in order to save them from relegation, I've effectively got to finish ahead of both. Norwich and Sunderland, uh, which you know their form, it, 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 you, with their form, you wouldn't necessarily say they're, they're guaranteed to do that. Even if you look at their squad and say, okay, maybe they've got the best squad out of those three teams. Um, so there is something at risk for the manager here. I wonder when you look at uh, how McLaren has got into this position, is it something that you ever foresaw at the, at the start of the season? Because as I said, they they do have what looks like a Premier League squad. Um, they do. Until you until you look at it carefully, and you, you look at the defence. E- even when the first choice defence is playing, it still contains Daryl Yamat at right back, who is an attacking right back. He's not a defender. You know, he, he just you watch him every game, and he plays right wing back. That's the you know, it, um, Colaccini at centre half was um, was um, let's let's on on the wane in the last couple of seasons anyway. Then you get Chancel and Bemba, who may have been an add-on for the Mitrovic deal, and he's actually played all right in Bemba. Um, 
and he might come back in the next couple of games and might bring some strength. And then you've got Paul Dummett at left back, who's come through the academy and is willing and is you know and is a local presence. And I think you know, and he's done all right actually. But you know, but he's not like a top class you know left back. He, and there's no one in the top five trying to buy Paul Dummett, put it like that. Then you go into midfield and you're looking at it, and Musa Sissoko, how you know how frustrating is he? I mean, he's bottled tackles on the pitch this season. Um, and you know he was booed. I saw he got two out of ten in the local paper this morning. Um, he was booed on Saturday. Um, he seems to play very well in the games that I see him in on TV. Well, he he has he he he'll have bursts. You know he'll have bursts, and there's undoubtedly a player there, but it's it's his application. And then you know just if you went through the whole team, there's question marks against all of them, even the new sins. Wijnaldum has been the success story, um, and he scored nine goals. But all nine goals have been at St James's Park, and four of those goals have been against Norwich. So, whilst, but at the same time, the goal he scored against Manchester United, Manchester United in January was a really top class goal, and he has scored against Chelsea and scored against. You know, he's, he's he is a, a very good player, and he looks alienated because he wants to play in the number ten role. And he's been switched around, you know. But he seems to have got that role now, um, and yet he looks disaffected. Mm. And he he might be one who you might say is not listening to the manager. Yeah, um, it's it's been a problem for for McLaren, a growing problem. But the last thing, Michael, I was wondering is there is maybe there's a school of thought that sometimes getting relegated isn't the worst thing that could happen to a club. Um, it's an opportunity maybe for a bit of a purge or a kind of a restructuring and to put the club generally on a better footing. And I think this is what people thought had happened at Newcastle. The last time they got relegated, they came up and suddenly were were a more competitive team in the Premier League for a couple of seasons. Um, but this, you know, I can't. I find it very difficult to, to find any argument um, that, that getting relegated this year could be a blessing in disguise for Newcastle. Getting relegated again so soon after the last time for Newcastle could be a, a really crushing blow to this club. Yeah, I, I agree with that. You know, when they came up before, they finished fifth, and in that summer of of twenty twelve, they bought Vernon and Ita. That was their one signing, and they sold a couple of players, such as Leon Best. They got three million for Leon Best. Um, and their next spend in that summer was um, about one and a half million to two million pounds. That was the summer to invest, and actually, that was the last opportunity because I think they finished sixteenth the next season, um, and it's been it's been downhill ever since because Pardew um, didn't get the players he wanted, um, and Graham Carter, the, the chief scout, dictated you know dictated the, the recruitment. So, but if they Whenever they went down before, they retained the the same team, uh, essentially. Um, but if they go down this time, I can't see. I can't see John Joe Shelby won't want to stay. Andros Townsend, I can't imagine he'll want to stay. Um, and they've just arrived. When Alden won't want to stay, um, so you, they have a real problem. I think if they go down, there will also be a real drop off in in attendances, and that'll be unless. I mean, tickets tickets can be bought cheaply there these days. So unless they drop the ticket price again, um, because actually one of his fascinations is having bums on seats. Um, and there were 52,000 there on Saturday. Um, so 
we always say this will be it. This will they'll go down, and this will be it. There'll be the big drop off. And locally, anecdotally, you know, you, you know, I know loads of lads, traditional football lads, who have chucked it in, and um, are going elsewhere, or not going at all to football. And they would welcome. They would, in a way, they would just welcome going down because it might get rid of Ashley. That's the overriding problem. If and that's the, the most important factor at the club is the ownership of the club. It's not Steve McLaren. He's just a crying big baby. But you cannot call him a player, a baby. Coach. And we never said they are baby. He's just a crying big baby. And you cannot call a player a baby. Yeah, it's interesting really what Michael is saying about uh, Mike Ashley there. This whole, um, this kind of inconsistency of what he's trying to do there. I mean, on the one hand, you've got this almost like a sentimental attachment to this idea of him being a real ruthless businessman like uh, counting all the all the pennies, you know, economizing in all these ways. And then sort of squandering money on, you know, he he he, squ- he, he bought Andres Townsend. Andres Townsend is a talented player, but this is a guy who was booted out by Pochettino at Tottenham for, well, Pochettino didn't think he really had the appetite for the kind of work he wanted him to do. And fighting with an assistant coach as well, wasn't it? It was, yeah. So Pochettino said, you know, I don't, I don't need to work with this guy. Um, maybe Newcastle thought, well, Townsend, we're getting him. New- Newcastle probably thought, okay, this is a kind of a money ball signing. We've got a twenty-five million pound player here. <sighs> probably not really that good. We've got a twenty-five million pound player here uh, who Spurs are letting go because their manager's got a problem with him. But you know, he won't be. He, but you know, it's it's like it seems almost like they're they're already buying Townsend with an eye to his with to his future resale. market value, his resale value, without really considering whether he's going to help them stay in the league, which ultimately. If you want to, if you want to be really commercial about your outlook, if you just want to think about money, then the only thing you're thinking about is staying in the league. You know, because every, you know, it doesn't matter if you're charging Steve McLaren's wife to come to the match. Uh, you know, if you're selling off little advertising space everywhere and you know, sort of ruthlessly economizing and monetizing every aspect of the club in a way designed to just really irritate everybody if you then get relegated at the end of it you've completely it's like the mm. big the big picture is just a complete disaster it's so it's so stupid and i mean when you consider as well that they only got away with it on the last day of the season last season they, they should have got relegated last season really they were blessed to avoid it mm. um yeah like the Titan- there is a titanic metaphor here but it's more like the barmen are desperately chasing tabs as yeah. the ship goes down, you know, what I mean, it's it's utterly absurd. Uh, Doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I mean, and, and that idea as well that you can just ch- start charge, charging people 
for two extra for two tickets for your manager or your assistant coaches. Mm. I mean, I, the what you're talking about there, the the figures are so infinitesimal mm. compared to the idea that you could get relegated at the end of the season. And not alone that, you're you're just go, you're going to irritate everyone that works for you on the way down as well. It's the opposite of you know a complimentary or courtesy gesture, you know, uh, where you make a token gesture. It costs you a token amount just to make people feel good about themselves. It's like you save a token amount by kind of by annoying everyone. Just annoy everyone. Yeah, uh, and and at the end of it, you save a few hundred pounds. Which just seems like a <laughs> a kind of a bit of a waste of time. I mean, he did say he. I remember he did he did interview Ashley. That is just before that West Ham game, which was the last game of last season. And he did it like his first TV interview, and he, I wouldn't have said it was hugely impressive. You know, he didn't strike you as a kind of Obama like hmm. figure. You know, uh, in terms of the his performance in this TV interview, but he did say a couple of things in that. One being that he would never, he would not leave before they'd won something, which isn't great, really, because they're not going to win, win anything with this guy. You know, if they do get relegated, he then can't even sell the club because it's, it's just, he's just going to lose so much money on it, selling it in the championship compared to selling it in the Premier League. So if they get relegated, I don't think it makes it more likely that he will leave. In fact, it, it makes, makes it, it more likely that... He will stay. He, yeah, exactly. So uh, not a great situation. I mean, anyway, he really start trying to save some money. When, uh, in the championship, which is a, thought to, a chilling thought for us all. Yeah, yeah. well, that is all we have uh, time for for today. Uh, check out our other program. We'll be talking a lot on there about, well, about Conor McGregor, mm. who uh, was unexpectedly defeated by Nate Diaz. You stayed um, up on, well, no, you got up early in the morning. Got up, got up to watch it, certainly did. Um, very entertaining fight. So we'll talk a little bit about that. And we're going to talk also... About Connacht Rugby. About, yeah. con- about Connacht Rugby. Uh, the Leicester City of the Pro 12. The Leicester City of the Pro 12. So all that uh, coming up in our other show, which will be out at some point this afternoon. Uh, for now, thanks for listening to this edition of the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast, and we'll talk to you again very soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.